Hey, this is Ross Payton with Roleplaying Bubble Radio, and I'm here with uh, Chris uh, Burasa. Is that right? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> with uh, Red Hook Studios, who uh, created the video game Darkest Dungeon, which we have uh, mentioned on RPPR before. We've done a Let's Play of it for part of it uh, on Raillery, our uh, YouTube channel, slash uh, now we're getting to streaming. So we'll probably stream it again because Darkest Dungeon is going to be releasing a new game mode soon. Uh, but I met you guys back in 2014 at PAX East, uh, when I was working on Delver's Drop and I've wanted to interview you ever since because you've mentioned specifically the Darkest Dungeon is, uh, inspired by a lot of mechanics from tabletop role-playing games, uh, especially like the sanity mechanic, which is, uh, clearly inspired from Call of Cthulhu. Um, so, but for the listeners who aren't already familiar with Darkest Dungeon, uh, could you explain the premise of the game and... Um, some of its core mechanics. Sure. Uh, well, since we met at PAX, I'll give you my PAX spiel. Um, it's, a, it's a gothic uh, turn-based roguelike RPG about the, the psychological um, consequences of being an adventurer, the cost of, of being an adventurer. Um, so we sort of pitch it as like, Dark Souls meets XCOM with HP Lovecraft kind of brokering the deal between the two. Um, the, the focus of the game is really on um, doing the best uh, with imperfect information, making the best out of a bad situation. Uh, the game tries to challenge you um, not to succeed, but how to manage failure. Um, so we try to approach it's a lot of these classic like RPG tropes um, just from a slightly different angle. Instead of a power fantasy, it's, a, it's almost a disempowerment fantasy in a way. Um, but yeah, that's that's the nature of the game. You uh, recruit um, up to I think twenty eight heroes over the course of your campaign. Um, they're constantly streaming in on the stagecoach. The only resource in the game that's free is people. Uh, everything else costs money. Uh, so you run these guys until they break. You might develop favorites. You pay money to reduce their stress after a particularly grueling adventure. You can send them, uh, you know, to the bar to drink, to the to the abbey to meditate or flagellate. Um, and over time, these characters develop personality quirks. They develop preferences. You might get a kleptomaniac paladin who. Um, you know, steals from your party every time you take them adventuring. Um, you know, you might have, uh, you know, any number of different combinations. And and fundamental to this whole experience is this idea of stress and um, everything that happens in the dungeon uh, adds to or subtracts from uh, a hero's stress level. So if they watch a party member get crit really hard, they might increase their stress. Um, if you tell them to stick their hand into a dead body to fish out a gem, uh, you know, the, they might increase their stress because that's kind of a gross thing to do. And uh, conversely, you know, when they land a big crit or they, they kill a boss or kill a big monster, um, their stress relieves when they disarm a trap, for instance, successfully. And so uh, in addition to health, you're also managing this, this the, the mental well-being of your party. Um, and if the stress accrues too much, they do what we call an affliction check, and the character can become sort of branded with a, a pattern of behavior ranging from abusiveness to masochism to paranoia. Um, or, and much less frequently, they actually rise to the occasion and become virtuous, we call it, which is like a courageous or stalwart. And, and all of these different conditions have status effects and buffs and debuffs that, that get applied to the character, and they also act um, occasionally outside of your control. So a masochist in the middle of a fight, for instance, might jump to the front of your party lineup in an effort to have damage done to him or her. 
Um, whereas a steadfast character, every time they take a turn, they buff the whole party's HP or something like that. So, um, you know, it's delivered in classic RPG formula, uh, but we're sort of trying to take a bit more of a subversive look at, at the RPG and the notion that, um, medieval adventurers are a power fantasy because it would be the worst job in the universe to, to do this job <laughs> to kill monsters underground for like gold is like a it's a i don't know if i can swear on your podcast oh no please do yeah it's a shitty shitty job <laughs> it is uh are you familiar with the term the the term murder hobo uh no this is new to me uh it's a i i'm not sure where it came from i think maybe 4chan but uh in their uh, traditional games forums but it's sort of become a common slang term in tabletop role-playing games to describe what an adventurer is, is they're, they're a murder hobo. They go, they're a hobo, they're homeless, they run around murdering people, and they spend all their money to be better at murder. So yeah, yeah that's-, that's exactly <laughs> it. And so I guess all we're adding to that is they have to also cope with a lifetime spent murdering. Yeah. Um, and what is your role uh, in at Red Hook? I'm the co-founder of the company, uh, creative director. I, I did all the art. Um we're small, so we all wear a lot of hats. Um, but myself and my, my partner, uh, Tyler Sigmund, mm-hmm. um, is a design director. We, we both started the company to make this game, basically. Okay. So you it's not just art. You've also contributed to the game design itself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And okay. I spearhead this sort of narrative effort and that kind of thing. Okay. But, I mean, it's it's really hard af- after a certain point with such a small team to uh, – like we, we we laughed when we went to do the credits for the game because we all did so much and eventually we just put our names there and we didn't even list jobs. <laughs> yeah, we did it. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so yeah. Uh, now, obviously, uh, as I mentioned, the the stress or sanity, you know, uh, characters have not only physical health but they have mental health, uh, and a lot of people have compared this to Call of Cthulhu. Uh, the famous tabletop RPG. Do you have a, a sort of background in tabletop RPGs or with that other t- members of your team that kind of inform that? Um, absolutely. Tyler is the preeminent board game guy. He's actually mm-hmm. designed and produced a couple of board games uh, as well, independently prior to, uh, to us doing this. Um, I play a fair amount, not, mm-hmm. not as much as him. Um, certainly I've played my share of Arkham horror. Uh, I really enjoyed the, the Dracula tabletop game. I don't know if you've oh, played yeah. that. I've, I, I have not, I'm aware of it though. So it's pretty cool. It's got a neat, you know, like one guy's Dracula and everybody's trying to catch him. And, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. And, and when we sat down, uh, Tyler and I to, to make this game, it was always conceived as, um, how do we take our love of board games, classic CRPGs, you know, and our respective skill sets. Cause I'm not like a 3d artist, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and make a video game out of that. So we okay. definitely came from that school of thought. Okay. Um, and that led to a very sort of unique setting because it's not you kept mentioning like medieval uh but it's the the setting of darkest dungeon is not quite medieval i mean there are flintlock weapons uh and it's so it's not quite modern it's not it's definitely not steampunk i would not characterize it as steampunk but it is kind of please uh, don't characterize it as steampunk <laughs> um it is of kind of it, it, it occupies sort of a um, weird little niche. I wouldn't even just know what subgenre. I mean, gothic would certainly would work, but uh, what led to that kind of decision to um choose that sort of era and adding that those kind of stylistic choices? Uh, it is very evocative. I, I'm I'm reminded of Mick uh, Magnola's work when I look at the artwork. You know, Hellboy and uh, uh, Baltimore now, and uh, um, I'm sure you've heard that comparison as well. But uh, yeah, what what kind of led to the style of Darkest Dungeon? Uh, well, there's a lot of ingredients. Um, 
you know, once we knew we wanted to explore the sort of frailty and flaws that, mm-hmm. that go along, you know, with, with people, you know, mm-hmm. like our heroes, even are like our, our firemen and policemen, they're all just, they're all just human beings with things that they do really well and things that they're terrible at or things that they're susceptible to. Um, so that idea of imperfection kind of like just worked its way into every part of the game. And, and I mentioned earlier about like the game being about kind of making, rolling with punches essentially. Yeah. Um, so we didn't want to spell everything out and, and we just kind of took those tenets and, and spread them across, you know, the entire game. So the storytelling is vague and you get a, a notional idea of what's happening, but you never quite get the full picture. And that is the same way the game mechanics work as well. You're not quite mm-hmm. sure what this afflicted character is going to do. Um, and then the, the art style. Yeah. Um, looked at some Mignola, looked at uh, Guy Davis, uh, Chris Batchelow, like a lot of these comic book artists that I grew up with. Cause I, I'd had a career, you know, art directing and doing um, concept art and the demand was for real painterly looking stuff. And so oh, I did yeah. that for a while. I did stuff for, uh, you know, games workshop and, and privateer and, you know, they want the sort of really rendered fantasy look. Um, and so I wanted something that I could get done quickly, knowing that I would be doing most of the, of the artwork, if not all of it. And uh, also wanted something imperfect and flawed and, and rough and kind of looked like a woodcut. And it, the game needs to feel like it's almost from the time that it's describing. Um, mm. And it's that kind of cohesion that just sort of led us to, to sort of just keep cycling back onto these central themes. Um, so we ended up kind of imagining the game almost as a Twilight Zone episode where it, it exists in a reality kind of similar enough to ours that you could get on with it, but mm-hmm. not tied to a specific place on earth or a specific, you know, time period. Um, you know, we have barbarians all the way up to yeah, flintlock pistols. So that covers about 350 years right there. Um, <laughs> and I just love the idea that whoever arrives on the stagecoach, it's almost like a metaphysical journey. Like it's just, they've done something so horrible that they're in hell and the whole thing is, you know, it's They're it's famous. recognizable, but it's it's not. And and I, I don't want to spoil, you know, how the, how the game goes. You're not in hell, you know, <laughs> in the game. Just as a disclaimer, it's not like Diablo or anything. Um, not a literal hell, but um, yeah, I like the idea that this was this sort of like hair drain of humanity. <laughs> so you you just see what's collected and uh, and you make the best of it. Um, All right, go from there. Um, and I can also see that sort of style. Um, did that be, did, th- did those kind of decisions become before or after you decided to use uh, the Cthulhu mythos? Or I mean, specifically, like, well, not them specifically, but like Lovecraft is obviously a major influence. Uh, yeah, for sure. So was that like sort of before? Was that kind of like the initial seed, or was that like after you started coming making these decisions? Oh, we should start making this more Lovecraftian, or like no, Lovecraft was in at the at the bottom floor. Okay. Um, it was it was me, Tyler, Scotch, and Lovecraft. Because <laughs> um, we like we're both really big fans. I, you know, I've gone over his stuff. Like, like, I'm a big Lovecraft fan. Not necessarily for the racism, um, mm-hmm. more for the cosmic horror. Right. Um, but yeah, we we knew that um, it was just there's something super compelling about that genre of horror. And but I also feel like it's a bit of a trap. So when you say you're a Lovecraftian game, then suddenly you you are judged based on how well you represent what he wrote down. Mm-hmm. And I love those themes. I love the influences and the ideas that in the play space where his imagination took him. But I didn't want to be a derivative product. Yeah. I didn't want to be Lovecraftian. So, um, yeah, it's very cosmic horror. The game sort of starts out and you're sort of fighting, you know, what you'd expect to fight in an RPG. And then it kind of scales up and gets a little mm-hmm. 
kind of crazy, uh, especially towards the end, um, in terms of its scale and scope and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, Lovecraft, it was always the idea of like, let's take it out of the 1920s and put it into like the 1640s kind of thing. Yeah, there's, there is kind of, um, there are two schools of like doing Lovecrafting games and some of them are like, uh, like the board game Arkham Horror, which is like trying to be, uh, trying to keep the fidelity to the original texts of uh, Lovecraft. But then there are uh, games and stories that kind of like take those themes and reinterpret them. You know, you could look at like, uh, I always think of Junji Ito's, uh, Junji Ito's uh, manga, uh, Uzumake. Are you familiar with that? Uh, no. With spirals. Um, and it's it takes place in Japan in the modern day, but there's no Cthulhu Mythos elements specifically in it. It's just a town that's being infested with spirals and it's very that's awesome. Hot. Yeah, no, it's got, and it has amazing art. Um, and I feel like the better, the best, like if Lovecraft were alive today, he would be creating stuff set in the modern era or he would not be doing stuff in the twenties and thirties. He was writing contemporary science fiction. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And then they had the best, you know, defenses that money could buy. Like they had rifles and, yeah. you know, carboys of acid and, and the rest of it. So yeah, he would be there with like Marines fighting, <laughs> you know, uh, what, what are your, some of your favorite, like, uh, Lovecraftian stories or were there anything specifically like homages or Easter eggs, uh, that uh, you, you pulled from some of the texts or uh, original stories? Yeah. I, I think the biggest, most direct, um, influence, I guess, story-wise was the rats on the walls. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it focuses so heavily on this house, you know, and, and our game is, you know, really rooted yeah. in the same idea. I've always loved the, like the haunted house, the gateway house, you know? Um, so I think that that's probably the most direct. Um, I also read a, a book by William Hope Hodgson called the house on the borderlands, oh, which yeah. Yeah. It's kind of messed up and surreal and this guy's like hunted by pigs and so that's where i got the idea to put pigs in our game instead of like green skin orcs or whatever mm-hmm. um it, there's a bit of horror at red hook we got our company name from that story mm-hmm. um and uh it, in the sense again of like something's just so deep underground that you you're no longer underground you know <laughs> um I, I like I like that stuff. Personally, my favorite story is probably Shadow over Innsmouth, just because it's so rare for him to write action sequences, mm-hmm. and I find that the escape from the uh, the Gilman house to be like a really exciting kind of break from the norm. Um, yeah. And just something about the, the rattling lock while he's trying to sleep, and just that whole sequence is, is really, really awesome. And then I like the uh, the sort of twist at the end as well. Oh yeah, um, and also uh, Shadow. The- uh, over Innsmouth also sort of is kind of a template for Dark Ascension because it shows sort of a broad organ like re- organized resistance to the the evil. You know, they 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 send in the Marines literally. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Torpedo the yeah. Yeah. the rest of it. Yeah, uh, so you can see that as kind of a template to the uh, uh, that uh, Dark Ascension. Um, so as you were designing the game and trying to I- incorporate that. Um, Clearly, obviously, a lot of we also talk a lot about game design on uh, RPPR, and obviously, video game design is different than role playing game design or board game design. Uh, but there are some I- 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 consistencies, um, and part of that, I think, one of the things we've learned designing tabletop games is iteration is important. You know, like revising your work and sending it out to be play tested and getting feedback and making adjustments based on that. And certainly, Darkest Dungeon is no stranger to that. Um, what 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 kind of lessons have you learned from working on this game, which has now sold a million copies, uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, iterating and kind of figuring out what's good feedback and what's not, and that sort of thing? 
That's um. I know it's a broad. That's question. a big question. Um, uh, if you want to break it down, I mean. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best for yeah. sure. Um, well, interestingly enough, uh, the game itself we didn't we didn't iterate on the mechanics. Um, in in game, you know, we didn't get like a rough, you know, uh, mock up prototype working and then sort of experiment and and try different things. Um, in engine. But we had spent about a year, the two of us, talking about what this game would look like, and, and I would storyboard it, and we'd talk about design, and we'd talk about, you know, oh, we can't do this because of this implication. And and so we, we spent a long time lining up the sniper shot instead of kind of jumping in and, and spray and pray. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time we were ready to execute on the game, we had a very, very clear idea of of what it would be and what and what it would look like. And it's actually stuck very, very close to that. Uh, original vision. Um, I think just we both had several, you know, 10 plus years in, in making video games prior to that. So we kind of had a good sense for what would work and, and what wouldn't work, mm-hmm. um, at least in the broad strokes. When we got down to, you know, looking, taking community feedback, watching people break the game, play it in ways that, you know, we didn't anticipate, um, there was a lot of tweaking and changing that happened. And, and I think we're, we're lucky to have been able to make good use of our time in early access um, where we could, you know, watch streamers play and respond to the game. It's the best kind of focus group because they don't even know if you're there or not. Um, and, and their, you know, reactions are, are candid and you can read the, the chat and kind of see how people are, are responding to, to things like, you know, that's bullshit. Um, <laughs> Uh, so it was, it was really cool to, to go through that process. And that helped us a lot with like class balance, monster balance, um, you know, getting a sense for like what abilities people would think would be cool. And, that, and we added a lot of mechanical diversity, uh, over that year that we spent in early access. We added characters that could like, um, basically, you know, go on heightened alert and, and hit back. We called it a repost. Mm-hmm. Um, we added like characters that could guard or take damage for other characters. And, um, m- many of those ideas were born from, it, you know, loose inklings of things that we thought we wanted to do, but then watching people play and being like, you know, there's a real role for this type of character or, you know, this type of enemy could actually function this way. Um, right down into like UI UX improvements, like no one knows where to click to start mm-hmm. a game or things like that. Um, so it ranged from sort of game design conceptual stuff that we were able to improve and, and add to um, right down to sort of the mundane, like just how do you get around the game and, and what makes more sense. We did have a, uh, I think pretty significant community blowback um, midway through our early access where we added um, probably the biggest mechanical change that the game has undergone, which was we added corpses or dead bodies to, to the, uh, to the enemy lineup. So for anybody unfamiliar with the game, the, the characters in the, and the monsters are lined up from a side view um, four on four for the fights and and positioning uh, where your character stands um, determines what skills they can use, and uh, and similarly for the enemies. But we were finding that the dominant strategy uh, for people who spent any amount of time with the game was simply to ignore the back and burn down the front enemies very quickly, and then the back guys would shuffle forward, and then they would essentially be out of position and useless, and then they'd get burnt down uh, quickly again. So there was no back row to back row combat, which is w- what we had always intended. Um, so we added uh, we added this this feature where uh, a monster would die and then leave a corpse. And um, we thought that would be a great way of, you know, encouraging players to have party comps that could hit all ranks or clear the corpses or, you know, reposition enemies. Um, and it added a lot of value or importance to, to those skills that were 
um, not being used as much as direct damage. Um, so yeah, we, we thought we were in early access. Shouldn't be a problem. That's what it's for. So uh, we threw some temp art in and, uh, and just updated the game. And, and, uh, it, it was a big, it was a very, very challenging time for us because up until that time, um, the feedback, uh, that we'd gotten is mostly universally positive, And this was mm-hmm. the first time and it was a, it was a big one. So a lot of people got really upset. You know, the game was fun yesterday. Now it sucks. Um, a lot of, you know, negative, uh, reviews on steam, you know, which, you know, when you're still in early access, those without official reviews, the, the steam review score, it means a great deal because that's the big number that people get confronted with when they go to buy the game. Um, so we, we went back and forth and, you know, I know it was, it was a really challenging time and we even had some articles written up about the game. Like we've lost our way and we don't know what we're doing anymore. And, um, really, I think the lesson coming out of that was just that we didn't manage the change very well. Um, and that was something that, that we learned as we moved forward was just, we have to get people ready for and accepting the idea before it hits the ground. I think it was just too jarring and it wasn't presented in a nice way. Like later I went back and did unique art for all the corpses and Mm. um, we adjusted how they played. Like they don't leave corpses on a crit now, which makes a crit feel even better than before Um, because you hit them so hard, you literally obliterate them. (laughs) Um, And uh, you know, we, we, if they bleed out due to a dot, they don't leave a corpse, which kind of, you know, gives you an incentive to, to leverage the power of those skills as well. Um, ultimately, I think it was the absolute best move for the game. I just don't think we managed the uh, the rollout of the change very well. And so, even though we felt strongly that it was an improvement, um, we had we had a big community problem um, kind of flare up. Okay, I mean, um, and this kind of discussion with your community—that's that's sort of like uh, you're, a lot of games. Uh, game companies have the, this kind of problem. This is not un- even unique to video games. I mean, you could look at. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and every time they change editions, there's a lot of bad blood between players. And you know, oh, they like they changed all the rules of my favorite edition. Ah, the game is so terrible now. Yeah. Um. So, but for uh, Darkest Dungeon, you know, you you mentioned earlier that the 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 sort of the theme of the game or the the game mechanics you really want to enforce are about managing failure. Um. And obviously, the corpse. Uh, you were trying to add, it sounds like that was sort of trying to reinforce that theme of trying to make it, you know, uh, less, have the players have less control over a fight, um, per se. So, um, or deal with the ramifications yeah. of like, you're in this tight hallway position means everything. And mm-hmm. yeah, you killed the front guy, but your guys have to step over this body to get to the next guy. You know, it's, it's not an easy mm-hmm. thing, you know, to do this. Um, do you feel now that like, now that the game's, uh, been out for a year, out of uh, early access for a year and that it's been this uh, great success. Uh, do you feel like the game still is reinforcing these original themes that you were like, or has the, sometimes when you design a game, you realize it's really about something else uh, than what you originally thought of. Um, is it, is it really still about managing failure and managing this or have you, have you kind of changed um, uh, your mind on that? No, it's. I think it's very much still about that. I think the game has managed to to hold fast to the things that made it unique and interesting. And we got significant pressure just to make it straight up easier. Um, it's certainly, um, you know, it's not a perfect game. I, I would never, you know, make that claim. Um, we get a lot of times we hear that the game is just kind of overstays its welcome and it's a little grindy, um, or, or that there is a, a lack of feeling of progress about sixty percent of the way through the game. 
Um, and, and that the sort of like 60 to 90% completion space, uh, takes too long, feels too long. Um, I think that's a fair critique and that's something that we're actually working on right now. Um, but as far as the major tenets of the game, no, I think we've, we've made it, um, more intuitive to navigate menus and move around and do the things you want to do. Uh, but we haven't exposed things, um, you know, that, that we feel are really, um, important to delivering on those sentiments. So for example, we never expose like the, what the likelihood of a character taking an action when they're afflicted is. So people just have to figure that out. And we've had a lot of requests from people to say like, well, look, I just want to know he has X percent chance to cut himself. He has X percent chance to back up. He has X percent chance to cause stress to the party. Just, you know, like, I just want to see that somewhere, but we don't want people to really know that we don't want to spell it out for people. Um, and I think that that uncertainty is something that we're we're proud of. Um, yeah, and so you're talking about um, uh, one thing you can keep you you kept tinkering with the game um, over the year, which is sort of an interesting uh, change. You know, tabletop games once you print or manufacture the thing, you you ship it out and that's it. Yeah, uh, but with video games, you get a chance to to continue tinkering. Um, so, like you were mentioning, you know, people were talking about how the uh late mid to late game was a little um I mean, lack some of the writing so you're trying to correct this with this new mode right a uh, radiant mode or uh yeah yeah we're basically saying like cuz so here we're kind of in a bit of a it's an interesting situation where we've had a lot of, of sales um and we've had a lot of people beat the game you know on on normal mode um with the current architecture let me call it that um, we don't want to shorten everything and then suddenly sort of trivialize the achievement that people who've kind of, you know, cause the slog was almost part of, of the game. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. the game is designed to kind of test you and, and, you know, um, you got to make smart choices and you're going to have setbacks and, and how you kind of deal with that is an important part of what we're doing. Um, so we want to be able to address the critique and create a better product without invalidating the suffering and work that, that our, you know, our original group of players or the group of players who've already beat the game um, on normal or, or NG plus ha- have done. Um, so that's why we, we settled on this notion of adding like an alternative mode. We already have an alternative mode um, uh, called NG plus when you, when you beat the, the base game and it's tougher, the enemies are have more HP. They hit harder. They have a higher crit chance. Um, you have a time limit or you fail um, so it introduces like a true roguelike state in, in that sense. Um, whereas the, the base campaign will allow you to just play indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So we just, uh, we figured we would mirror that on the other side and create not an easier campaign per se, but a more accelerated campaign and one that kind of, uh, catches you a little bit when you fall. So, um, you can recover trinkets a little bit more easily. Trinkets are the loot that we, that you get and, and give to your characters to increase their power. Um, so if you have a particularly nasty party wipe, sometimes the biggest sting is losing the trinkets because they're even more rare than the people who are just streaming off the stagecoach. Um, and that's by design too, because we want you to start treating people really poorly. Um, so that you essentially become your, your own ancestor who, you know, wrought all this awfulness. Um, so yeah, we're, we're just sort of adjusting the economy tuning, um, the, the XP progression and that kind of thing. We're not getting rid of things like permadeath, which, you know, is part and parcel of the, of the darkest dungeon experience. Um, you're always playing for keeps in this game. And, uh, so even on a faster campaign, you still have to contend with permanent loss, mm-hmm. which I think is, 
again, one of those things that's important. If we were going to roll that back, I'd feel like to your earlier point, you know, maybe the game would have, it would no longer be quite as um, aggressive in, in pursuing its own aims if we compromised on those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but we made the decision not to. So this is a radiant mode is a, is a more expedited, more accelerated campaign, but it keeps the sort of things that make the game what it is. Um, we just sort of try to help you to keep moving forward um, a little bit more. Interesting. Um, but I mean, it's still uh, one of the things I found interesting, you know, about managing failure um, in your game. I mean, uh, is the 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 ad, act of randomness. Uh, so I assume Radio Mode is still going to have that those sort of um, a lot of in Darkest Dungeon is dealing with bad rolls in a sense uh, where your party gets ambushed or uh, some some or some sort of event happens where your characters uh, just you know. Or, you know, meet a really bad, unique encounter. Um, like, what is that guy's name? The Collector? Yeah. Uh, yeah, if he shows up, you're probably going to have a bad time uh, in the dungeon, especially if you're already trying to hunt a boss down. Um, so I assume that's still going to be in the game. And uh, and I, was the radio, was the, 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 the sort of emphasis on the, on the RNG to create chaos uh, sort of the way of how you introduce fa- failure instead of necessarily players make bad choices that result in failure? Because you can make well, all the right moves in Darkest Dungeon and still lose your party because of... That, that is exactly... Um, we don't have a design doc, per se, but that is exactly how we say it. You can make all the right moves, and sometimes things just go bad. Um, now, there's a lot to be said in our game for um, preparation and, and forethought. And you can... What we wanted to do was strike a balance where, yes, if you just go in and you sit down and you play the game... You're going to feel like it's just crazy random sometimes. Um, But with a little bit of experience, you begin to understand um, the game systems. You begin to understand um, how to prepare for each type of level. And you can mitigate a lot of the bad stuff um, with a little bit of forethought. Um, Even having said that, the analogy I use is like a lot of games are about, you know, learning to climb mountains and then climbing the highest mountain. Mm -hmm. Our game is no matter how much you've trained and all the best gear that you might have for mountain climbing, the game starts when you have already broken your leg and you're on the mountain. So it's, it's, it's just part of what makes the game its own thing is that we're, we're just expressly saying, and we try to spell it out at the beginning of the game. We have a little disclaimer. Um, it's it, sometimes things are just not going to go your way and there's nothing you could have done about it. And, and that is a type of, that's a type of test. Um, that um, really tests your leadership and your management skill because uh, we, we actually modeled uh, some of the game a little bit off of making video games, like a production environment. You know, there's deadlines, there's a lot of stress. Sometimes people respond favorably to it. Other times they break down. It looks like you might miss a ship window or, you know, the game crashes and nobody knows why. It's a very intense time and it's a group of people under that kind of pressure. And so we, we looked at that a little bit when we were making this game Um and we wanted to, to mimic that because, you know, in every great movie, sometimes there's just plot conceits in order to create jeopardy. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, well, you know, the, the aliens have spread and they've taken over the facility and, you know, we lost our, our dropship or whatever it is. And then the movie is about how do we get out of here? The movie isn't that we are owed a victory because that isn't, you know, nearly as tense or exciting. Um, so, yeah, sometimes things just go wrong. But you can run away from the dungeon anytime you want. So if you press your luck, it's kind of on you a little bit. Um, if you don't recognize where things are headed soon enough, then then you'll be punished. If you're careless, you'll be punished. Um, 
but you can gain a mastery over the system so that the the wildness and and you know extreme variability of some of the outcomes uh, diminishes to the point of almost expectation. Like we have some extremely talented players who, you know, one guy I think the record is he beat the NG Plus game in 26 weeks. Like that's in, in a week is one mission in game, right. and, and that's just incredible. I, mean, I didn't think that was possible. Um, Did he record I, that? Is that on YouTube? Yeah, it, it's out there. There's a guy. Um, wow. I don't want to spoil this too much. Yeah, I yeah. guess I can say this, but there's there's a mechanic related to the final boss of the game that someone was able to completely circumvent simply uh, by preparedness and gaming it because he'd done he'd done it a few times, obviously. Yeah. Um, but uh, so it's it's not an insurmountable system, and so we we kind of chuckle sometimes because we see this uh, this journey that players go on, and it's it's uh, Twitter makes it um, very uh, very apparent. It's a uh, you know, if you search for just Darkest Space Dungeon or something on yeah. Twitter, you'll see, like, just got Darkest Dungeon. And, you know, I'm loving this game. Oh, my God. You know, just then the next tweet is, um, wow, you know, this game is so deep and I'm really enjoying it. You know, love the art style or, or whatever. And then the next tweet is, like, just had my party wiped. This is some bullshit RNG. <laughs> and the next tweet is, like, fuck this game. I'm out. This game is a piece of shit. It's balanced like crap, blah, blah, blah. And then the next tweet is, got back into darkest dungeon and uh you know beat the hag feeling pretty good and then they're back on the on the oh, train wagon, there's yeah. that process of learning that people seem to have to go through where it's almost like the end of the dark night like they, they they love batman at first and then they've got to hate him for a little while uh in order to properly appreciate him later maybe <laughs> i don't know <laughs> um well i th- i'd say that's a successful game then if you could in, in in get the kind of responses you were hoping for um and reinforce the kind of themes you were wanting to develop in the game um what kind of lessons have you learned as a game developer just on working on dark- darkest dungeon i mean uh especially any lessons you'd like give to people who are trying to make their own games at this point yeah. like our listeners I'm I'm happy that uh, I'm happy that I took the risk. Uh, a lot of people talk about like what it takes to make an indie game, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or, or any like it doesn't even have to be a video game. Like what it takes to go out on your own, uh, no matter what that looks like to you. But no one ever really talks about what it takes from you to do that. <laughs> and um, I'm I'm obviously just. Uh, in awe and very grateful for the reception that the game has had and, and to be able to tell the story of, of going out on my own and then creating something that resonated with people. Um, I don't take that lightly or, or flippantly at all. Um, but, but there was a cost to bear, you know, like, uh, you have to have a supportive partner. Um, if, if you're married, I wouldn't recommend having a second child in the (laughs) middle of doing it. I did that. Not, not the coolest move really. Um, She's great, but yeah, it was a rough year. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've, I had to withdraw a lot of marriage credit. I had to, you know, I had some strained relationships with friends of mine because I was no longer available to be friends. And just you got to work all the time. You can't go to parties. You can't do the things that you thought you used to enjoy doing because you have so much riding on, on, on this project. You know, whatever it looks like to you, it could be board game, could be animated show, could be video game, whatever it is. Um, so it takes a lot from you. It takes a lot of discipline um, to be able to like maintain uh, creative output in the face of like desperation and your life being held together with like duct tape. So I guess the biggest piece of advice I'd say is expect it to be rough. Like, it, you know, it can be rewarding and, and certainly I'm glad I went through it, but um, it, you'll need to, you'll need to like be prepared to, 
to let some things go and and, and you're going to need to have a strong support network to kind of keep you propped up when you start to when you start to lose it because you know I, I we all lost it along the way we even started referring to our, each other on the team like oh okay well look you know chris is afflicted this week like because i'm super stressed out about something like you know just give him some space or whatever it is um so the game almost the language of the game almost became like how we talked about our our team dynamics um, <laughs> Uh, gotta yeah. go to the tavern. Yeah, get, uh, yeah, no, big time. Yeah, totally. Um, so I mean, I think that's probably the most universal thing I could say is just mm-hmm. be on the lookout because there's a price to pay beyond just, right. um, you know, what, what is commonplace referred to. Oh yeah, you know, it's a big risk to go out in Europe. It's not just a big risk. It, it's a, it's a big, it's a big price. So you need to make sure that you've got a little bit of money in the bank and, and hopefully some people around you who are, you know, who believe in you and, and want to keep you moving, uh, even when you feel like you can't do it yourself. Right. More, more practically to video games. Um, I see a lot of, I know a lot of artists who are much, much better than I am uh, and their projects don't get the same recognition. And I think a lot of times uh, I meet indie teams who don't value um, marketing or, or business. Mm. And I think that's maybe one of the differences between us and some of these other teams is that both Tyler and I enjoy talking about how we can market it even on a budget, you know, even just with social media posts that cost nothing but the time that we put into them. Um, enjoying that part of, of your, of your project, of your business is, is essential for its own success. So I always say like, you know, an artist needs an audience, right? So you can't just expect it to appear. You have to like cultivate that and, and build it and, and, and service it and, um, you know, help it to grow so that it's there when you need it, when you're ready to release something for sale and you finally, you know, cathartically brought this thing into the world, then your audience is, is waiting for you. So every step of the way, we sort of tried to seed things. Um, we collected, we released a trailer eight months or six months before our Kickstarter campaign went live. And we used that to get um, names on a mailing list so that when the Kickstarter campaign went live, we mailed the people on the mailing list saying, look, you know, thanks for signing up. This is the moment that we've been, you know, gearing up for. Um, and the same thing with uh, with the early access launch. We we did an advanced uh, trailer, and we we tried to maintain a lot of like outbound communication and and get people roped in and and create the impression that, or rather, communicate the reality that uh, you know things were happening. The game was moving. It was coming together, um, and it was a real thing that they could be part of. So I think spending a little bit of time, even if you're you're dedicated to your craft um, of programming or, or design or art or whatever it is, spending a little bit of time um, building up an audience and, and giving the marketing uh, a little bit of your focus and attention um, pays out, pays out dividends. I think that's really, really important. Uh, also, you got to be good at what you're doing and have a good idea and all those other tropes and cliches. <laughs> people say all of that, as well as it's going to suck everything out of your life and don't overlook marketing. Well, um, yeah, no, I definitely, I, I definitely agree with artist needs an audience uh, more than anything else because um, you know you, I do see a lot of other people who want to create something and then they just don't think that they need to put any effort into telling the world about it. Uh, and so you know, writing or art—that's communication. Why you need to communicate it with others? Um, but I also think, um, I mean, certainly the tabletop game space is a little different because you don't have to. Video games, it's all or nothing. You really, you do have to fully commit. I mean, because of the sheer amount of work that any video game would take. Uh, but in tabletop games, there are a lot of people who do it on the side uh, because it's it's just writing or drawing a book. You know, uh, it, the, 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 the amount of work 
is not as much as designing a very sophisticated computer program uh, mm-hmm. with all these requirements. But I think you can kind of distill it into saying that you need to be sustainable. And like with video games, you need to change your life in order to make it sustainable. Because if you try to keep up your commit prior commitments to friends and family and still work all that grind, you know, work all those hours, that would, that would kill you, you know, that would uh, figuratively or maybe even literally. So uh, recognize that you have to, can you picture yourself doing this a year down the road or whatever, I think is a good a kind of a way of framing it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think so for okay. sure. Um, I, I've also like, I, I think at a certain point you've got to take a plunge. I know a lot of people who are working a job and then they're like, well, I'm going to do this in the evenings. And I did that for a year in the evenings, you know, with Tyler, but that was us talking and planning. And when we were ready to go, we stopped doing everything else. And uh, I think it's very, very difficult to actually get something across the finish line video game or not. Mm-hmm. Um, w- without, without having some skin in the game and being like, I need this to succeed. You know, I only have X number of months before my runway runs out. That's true. Um, you know, to, to put something, the, the finishing touches and, and drag it across the finish line. Um, I, I haven't seen that happen successfully too many times unless the, the person or the team was, was entirely focused on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, those are, those are very good lessons, um, to keep in mind. Um, anything about, uh, specifically about like game, uh, like balancers, uh, design. I mean, we talked about, you know, uh, the community feedback and <laughs> the corpse dilemma. Um, but was there any, any, like when you make your next game, whatever that is, mm-hmm. uh, are there any, are you, are there any steps that will, you'll be doing differently next time that you, you, uh, didn't do with darkest dungeon? Or do you think you um, have the process down at this point? Yeah, I don't know. It's weird because there's no, like, one process. Like, I know a lot of teams who've had success with, like, in-engine iteration, and they're like, we're going to build the game based on a mechanic or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but our game was sort of built almost on, a, like, a theory or an idea, so we didn't have to go that route. Um, as far as what we do different, I think, you know, for us and our team, uh, and for, for Tyler and I, as far as collaborators go, um, we do best when something can percolate and sort of sit in the pot for a little while. Mm -hmm. And so we've been loosely talking about what our next game might look like. Um, I think we just want to avoid rushing it and, Mm -hmm. and saying like, Oh, well, you know, dungeons doing great. Let's just double down and double down on darkest dungeon and just throw all these D's at the wall. (laughs) And, uh, I think we want to make sure that that, that follow-up title, whatever it is, um, has the same space to kind of breathe and and sort of come into its own and, and be almost like a like a better call Saul to a Breaking Bad as opposed to just a Breaking Bad two if that makes mm-hmm. sense sure like um, a spinoff title essentially yeah yeah or something that you know stands on its own and and has its own virtues and is not exactly like a, a replica of its older brother kind of thing mm-hmm. different um, genre maybe yeah or something you know it could be a different theme could be a different um, presentation I, I'm not sure I'm not making any like we haven't really. Okay totally decided it or anything like that. Um, but I think we'd like to do something that is, is, uh, somewhat familiar. I think it's cool when people have tattooed this stuff on their bodies and they dress up, you know, as our characters at conventions, it's, it's honestly the highest honor you can get as a creator to see somebody's like, I liked it so much. I burnt it into my flesh. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's yeah. so hardcore. Like that's, I would, I'm not, even, I haven't even tattooed my own drawings on me. So I don't know why you're doing it, but that's, it's awesome. Um, yeah. But yeah. I don't know. As far as what we would do differently, I guess I'm kind of avoiding the question a little bit. Um, yeah. 
because I'm not exactly sure. I guess what I'm really driving at. So it depends at, on the game for you. Like, it, yeah, exactly. It depends on what it is we're going to make. It has to just be given the respect it deserves. I think that our game has a strong identity because we we gave it a strong identity, but then we almost invited it to the discussion when we were talking about new mechanics or features or characters, and we allowed it to weigh in on it. Like, I don't think this fits with me, you know? Um, and our game is kind of an asshole that way. <laughs> so I, I just think that what we want to do is get to know this second game in the same way so that we can do what it needs as well. And that might be different than what uh, Darkest Dungeon needed. Okay. Uh, speaking of what Darkest Dungeon needs, um, you know, the Radiant Mode is coming up. Um, what? And you mentioned DLC is coming up. Uh, the Court of the Crimson King, is that it? Uh, uh, Crimson Court. Crimson Court, sorry. Yeah. Crimson King is a different thing. Uh, so can you tell us about that? Um, or is that hmm. still under wraps? Uh, I can say a few things. The uh, Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Radiant Mode is meant to provide an alternative campaign with a, an accelerated kind of pace mm-hmm. so that you can move through it more quickly. Um, you know, me in particular, I'm really proud of the end game. And so seeing that, you know, 0.9% of all players have ever beaten it mm-hmm. makes it very special for those players. But I would like, you know, more people to be able to uh, experience that stuff. And yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll admit, I, I backed your Kickstarter and I have put maybe 50 hours into it and I have not beaten it. Uh, yeah. See, of... I think, I think 50 hours is like, it's, it should be beatable in, in 40 yeah. to 50 hours. Um, so that, that's essentially what the radiant mode is, but we always, we always try to over deliver. We always try to talk about ways we can enhance it. So, um, you know, we've added, uh, one of the other critiques we got is that when you move from the mid tier to the high difficulty dungeons as, as part of the normal course of a campaign, um, there's no new monsters. Whereas when you go from beginner to middle dungeons, mm-hmm. um, you get these new types of enemies. So you get some new challenge, some new content. Um, so, uh, We've added one new uh, elite monster in every dungeon, and they have some new mechanics to sort of challenge the the more seasoned players. And those will be added to every mode. Um, mm-hmm. We've also done a lot. We're going to do, do some uh, character skill balancing, some overall tuning that will apply to everything, uh, some menu cleanup, um, and then a couple of surprises. So it should be a nice meaty patch. It's free. Um, yeah. It'll be out in a couple of weeks, uh, first week of February or so. And uh, so that's the plan with that. And then Crimson Court is going to be our first like paid DLC. And that's going to be very robust. We want to make sure that, you know, we deliver exceptional value for that, for that money. And we haven't said too much about it. I think we've, you know, we've given it a vampiric kind of quality um, and are sort of going with this mosquito tick kind of angle for the vampires. Mm-hmm. Um just because I'm kind of tired of like sexy vampires. Sure. Uh, and our game really is more like the strain sexy. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of just parasitic, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we got a lot of, a lot of theory crafting on our subreddit about like when we announced the DLC, you know, I want a vampire hunter, vampire hunter would be so cool. And so I was reading this and I said, well, we should make a vampire hunter, but we should make it a boss so that like, if one of your guys gets sick with, with the curse, the crimson curse or whatever it is, um, this guy comes hunting you. And so we, <laughs> we revealed the, the fanatic, I think just before Christmas. Um, and he's basically this like insane religious zealot that'll like burn your guys at the stake in the middle of the fight and, you know, yell verses at you. And, and basically he's just gone crazy and he's just stalking these things everywhere and he gets you confused with them kind of thing. So almost like a third faction in, in a, in a limited way. Interesting. Um, 
so yeah, we're, we're trying to do some things that are a little atypical and, and there's a lot of content going into this, into this DLC. So that's why we moved the ship data. And originally we wanted to get it out sometime February, March, but it's going to be more like April because we sort of paused it. We did a bunch of work. Like I have a lot of the stuff done for it, but then when we realized we wanted to do this radiant thing, um, right. sooner we, we sort of shifted over and then we got to talking about new monsters and then that eats up the art resource. So. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, you're not, you're not on valve time, so you're fine. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, so, uh, I'm fine with that. Uh, one, one question from, uh, one of my listeners, um, Ethan, uh, wanted to know why Hellions and Plague Doctors are so boss. So, um, I guess he's been playing the game. Uh, a yeah. Lot. That's so, it's funny because like every character during early access almost had like a time in the sun. Yeah. Um, for a while, highwaymen were just like, it's like they're just too overpowered and then we changed how aoe damage is calculated and now they're too weak and uh so yeah i think plague doctors for a long time were regarded as like trash tier mm-hmm. um so it's funny that he's asking about them but they're they're exceptional in environments that you can poison and use acid so against skeletons they're great uh, but if you take them into the um the forest area, the weald, with all the uh, the toxic enemies and the blight, um, they're really less effective. Um, they're good for stunning, but but even then, I, I think it's a bit more of a liability in those environments. So some characters are stronger in some environments. Uh, the Hellion was was overpowered for quite a while too, and she's been brought down um, into range a little bit now. Um, but there's no express reason why. You know, I think that might just be that that particular players affinity for them mm-hmm. uh, certainly like we pull metrics all the time and and the usage is not um like we don't have big variation as far as usage goes uh, so yeah i don't know i personally i'm not a big uh not a big hellion fan myself but oh, uh interesting. yeah what, what are your fun. favorite characters then i like more of the high mobility parties so mm-hmm. i like uh houndmaster uh mm-hmm. i like the um the grave robbers probably my favorite um, and I like the highwayman a lot. So I like setting up the repost that he has now. And, um, I like the grave robbers lunging and fading, fading back. And then, um, just her range crit is, is awesome. Um, but I think like, that's, that's one of the things that, that we managed to do pretty well. Like I said, it's not, it's not a perfect game. So I don't, I don't want anybody listening to this to get the impression that we sit around like just high-fiving <laughs> relentlessly all day long. Um, but I think one of the things that worked out well for us was, um, having asymmetrically balanced characters. Some characters are, are worse at short missions, but when you can get them around a campfire, they can do all sorts of crazy buffs and then they're almost overpowered after resting. Um, whereas other characters, you know, are just fine out of the gate, but don't have, don't bring the same like advantages to bear, you know, camping. Some characters are more, you know, powerful in certain environments, uh, than others. And, and that asymmetry, I think served us well because, it allows people to really get creative with their, with their party compositions and experiment and try things. And, um, you know, I, we have, I think there's a YouTube video of some, somebody trying to fight the final boss with like four antiquarians, which are not, not balanced for <laughs> combat. Like they're, they're poor in combat by design because they allow you to like increase your wealth, um, throughout the run. So I, I thought that was really cool that he was even attempting that. So I think, the, the variability has, has really led to a lot of polarizing characters. So uh, the leper in particular, some people just swear by him and other people swear he's the worst, you know, garbage in the game. Um, so it's really interesting to read that kind of stuff and see the, <laughs> the vacillating opinions, you know? 
Okay. Um, and since you're the artist, uh, what what is your favorite monster design in the game? This is from Sam. Uh, and yeah, why why what is your yeah what is your favorite monster design uh, or uh, I guess design in the game overall? Well, what's your favorite piece of work? Oh man, I can't I can't I can't uh, do this. Sorry, can't, Sam. can't choose a, a favorite out of all your babies. Uh, like to me, okay, so like I I I've worked in games for a long time, and you know there were a lot of ideas when you get art directed um, that you can't use, and they kind of go into this bin. And so mm-hmm. for me, this game represented an opportunity to to like just put all my favorite things in there. I'm a huge horror fan, huge Lovecraft fan, mm-hmm. low fantasy guy, Conan. Um, so it's really hard for me to split it apart like that, like pick a favorite hero because I really love the designs of some, but I love the mechanics of others. And, you know, the monsters, you know, some of them, it's, it's really hard to like, obviously I'm not going to choose maggot, you know, <laughs> it's just a maggot, but uh, y- you know, I, there's a lot, that I love in the, in this game, just from a weird subjective, it's, it's my baby kind of thing. So it's very hard for me to pick like a, a single thing, I guess. Um, if we're not counting the heroes, uh, which I, which I'm most uh, proud of, um, I think it's the direction that we went with the end game like that, Oh yeah. that as a whole, I feel like I'm proud of the, um, the escalation of the, there's four end game missions, and you do them sequentially and they're not like um, procedurally generated. They're, they're pre-designed. And just from a purely creative narrative standpoint, um, I'm, I'm happy with how we delivered on cosmic horror. So I think that's my favorite part of, of the game or, or the monsters. Um, just the, the, the journey that you, that you take. Um, I have bosses along the way that I really like. I think the profit uh, turned out really well. Um, visually uh, you know I, I like the the crew the sunken crew a lot um the yeah. sirens brainwash mechanic turned out really great and i think a lot of that is due to uh power up audio did a great job of like overlaying this like singer on top of the combat track when she transforms and she's beautiful um so there's a lot of little moments along the way related to the monsters that i like um i like it when people lose their shit fighting slimes because they just keep respawning um there's a lot of a lot of joy there but yeah, I think just the the scope of what the story resolves itself as, and the types of monsters you fight as you move through the darkest dungeon, I think is probably um, my finest work. Um, but yeah, just representative of of kind of like I, I think that turned out really well, and I think it could have gone worse. So I feel like it, it, it was it was solid. Okay, uh, I personally really enjoyed the. Uh, the flesh uh, boss from the uh, the Warren, the, the pig, yeah. the spider eyes, uh, and all those other little. Uh, it reminds me a lot of John Carpenter's The Thing. So totally, uh, that which was is yeah. a good thing. Sure. Uh, and of course, obviously, your favorite work is probably going to be from the upcoming DLC or uh, Radiant Mode. So we haven't even seen the best yet, probably. Uh, <laughs> Got some pretty cool ideas for bosses for the for the DLC. Uh, okay. I won't um, lie. Okay, uh, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Um, Chris, uh, thanks a lot for talking to us, and I'm looking forward to uh, delving into the Darkest Dungeon once again, once Three Deep Mode comes out. I'll certainly be looking out for the DLC. Um, So uh, thanks for listening, everyone.